Well, thanks, Jeff, for that introduction. Um, really excited to be here. Um, like you were saying, my name's Joss. My wife, Kyla, and I are missionaries through this family, the IHOP, Newbridge, and Finisset Task family. And in just five days, we're going to be leaving um, America to go to live among a people who, whose language we do not speak, whose culture is unfamiliar to us, and with the ambition to make disciples of Jesus among Muslims. It's been a long journey for us getting here, several years, and we're so excited to finally be on the cusp of what we feel the Lord has been inviting us into for, for a long time now. And you might be anticipating that the missionary is going like, to talk to you about missions or something tonight. And well, that's great. I kind of do that a lot. It's almost how I make a living. But what, what I instead want to do is something a bit different. Because while missions gets me excited, what gets my heart burning is when I encounter the identity of God in the scriptures in a way that compels me to recalibrate my vision, to reorient my heart, and to just reset the way that I approach God. And when we look at the scriptures, when we ask for revelation, he is, really, he is ready and waiting to give us that revelation. So tonight, I want to approach what, what I believe is a, a keystone text in the Old Testament where the identity of God is revealed, and particularly the identity of God is revealed through the context of a trial where the identity of God is put on trial, and he's revealed as someone who is exceedingly humble and altogether just. Now we're quick to see those qualities in God. A few verses that come to mind are, when we think of Jesus, are Philippians 2, where Paul talks about how Jesus did not consider his equality with God something to be held onto for his own advantage, but he lowered himself taking the form of a man, right? And then we also have Romans 3, where Paul talks about how Jesus is the just justifier of the one who has faith in him. And while we're quick to attribute characteristics like humility and justice to Jesus, and I think that's awesome, I, I fear and my concern is that we're slow to attribute those same characteristics to the revelation of Yahweh in the Old Testament. And friends, that's a danger because the core confession of the New Testament is that Jesus is Yahweh. And I, be, I believe that if we fail to approach the revelation of Yahweh in the Old Testament, appropriately, we will fail and by necessity fail to approach the revelation of Jesus in the New Testament with eyes to see and with ears to hear. So in that spirit, let's go to the scriptures. First, I want to pray just because I do, I do really believe it is the Holy Spirit who illuminates the scriptures to us and lets them come alive. So let's just pray. Holy Spirit, we need, we need your help. We need you to come and illuminate our minds to understand the scriptures. We need you to, to speak truth to us, to open our minds to understand the scriptures. I ask that we would, even tonight, have experiences like, like those two disciples had on the road to Emmaus, where as they walked with, with the resurrected Lord along the way, and he talked to them about the Old Testament and revealed his place in all the scriptures, that their hearts burned within them. God, I ask that our hearts would burn within us as we look at your word and as we see you revealed in the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right, let's go to Exodus 17, verses one to seven. I think it'll get up on the screen, um, but if, even if it is, uh, follow along in your Bibles because we're kind of gonna just do a, 
we're going to go on a journey tonight. We're going to do a study, and I'm really excited for where the Lord's going to take us. So can we get that up? Awesome. Uh, I'll just read it through all at once, and then we'll go by verse by verse. Uh, 17. And all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of Yahweh. Now, let me pause there for a second. You probably already all know this, but whenever you look in your Bible and you read and you see those four letters, Lord, in all caps, that's just a placeholder for Yahweh. And there's a lot of reasons why it's there. It's mainly just as a place of reverence that we don't say the name of God. But when I interact with the, old, with the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament, I, as a practice, like to say Yahweh because it helps me remember that I'm actually reading about a person, not a title. And so tonight, if you don't like that, that's fine. But that's what we're going to do. That's what I'm going to do just because I want us to constantly be remembering. We're actually talking about a person. He has a personality. He has thoughts. He's not just a title. He's not just Lord, though he is, but his name is Yahweh. So... They moved along according to the commandment of Yahweh and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test Yahweh? But the people there thirsted for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to Yahweh, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And Yahweh said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel And take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested Yahweh by saying, is Yahweh among us or not. The word of the Lord. Let's start with just just kind of setting this, this, making a lot of pops, I don't like that. Hello, hopefully hopefully we can get through this. Let's start by putting this in in a setting chronologically and geographically. So our event, Exodus 17, is occurring about a month and a half after the Exodus, after that instance where with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, Yahweh delivered Israel out of Egypt and he passed them through the Red Sea and led them into the wilderness. They've only been there for about a month and a half. And that should be a key to us, to a, a little clue to tell us that everything that's happened, all of the judgments on Egypt, all of the providence in the wilderness, that's not history, that's memory. Like, I remember that, that happened a few weeks ago. This is all very, very recent in relation to the Exodus. On the other side of things, this is about two weeks or so before Israel as a whole encampment arrives at Mount Sinai um, where Yahweh will come down on the mountain in fire and Moses will go up and down and up and down and he will give the law to the people of Israel. Geographically, Rephidim is adjacent to Mount Sinai and we know that based upon this text and as well as the text in Numbers that recounts the wanderings of the people of Israel, that they're, they're right next to each other. You can think of Rephidim as being like a little northwest and Sinai as a little northeast, sorry, southeast. 
um, and it's a very dry and very barren place. It's certainly not fit to the s- sustain the 600,000 Hebrew men, besides the women and children, that were existing as, as the Israelite people at that time. Now, our event occurs specifically nearby at a rock at Horeb. And the, the name Horeb is interchangeable for Mount Sinai, and it literally means dry place. So it's appropriate to think of it as an extra dry place in an already dry place, just for context. Um, so it's important to know as you go forward is that Rafidim and, and Sinai are not the same place, they're, but they're like next door neighbors. It's probably like a couple hour journey to get there. So before we hop into the text, I, I need to explain a few narrative realities that inform us contextually so that we can approach this text rightly. Because if we just go right into it, we're kind of not going to be reading it in the process of the narrative thus far, and we're probably going to read the text wrong. So let's just start by, I want to go over three points that I think will really equip us to approach this text appropriately. And the first is that Yahweh's judgments on Egypt, if you want to take notes, you don't have to, but this is a good place to start. Yahweh's judgments on Egypt culminating in the Exodus were not only into physical deliverance from the power of Pharaoh, but also into spiritual deliverance from the power of the gods of Egypt. Now, where do I get that from? In Exodus 12, 12, between the ninth and 10th plagues, Yahweh says, on all the gods of Egypt, I execute judgments. And that's a key to us that it's not just something happening between a divine figure and a political figure, Pharaoh. There's actually something happening like on a spiritual level here. And in, from what I can tell reading the text, what's happening in Yahweh's mind is not, hey, I'm trying to deliver you from Pharaoh, but I'm delivering you from these powers that have held you in slavery for 400 years. And beyond all that, scholars are in agreement that the plagues on Egypt, the 10 judgments on Egypt are each specific indictments that get different against different Egyptian deities, where in each of those instances, in each of those judgments, Yahweh is saying, my authority is superior to the God who rules in this realm of creation. And also this one, and also this one, and this one too. Yahweh is again and again and again showing that his authority is superior. Guys, God could easily have delivered the people of Israel in a day with one judgment, but he did it over a a span of time. He did it in stages. And what the story tells us is that he did it because he wanted to get glory over Pharaoh. He wanted people to recognize who he was in the midst of that and how he was continually in every instance superior to these Egyptian deities and to their, their like, human manifestation in the identity of Pharaoh. So it's all about to te- it's all about teaching Israel something to teach him who he is, which leads us to our first point of context, which is that Yahweh and Yahweh alone has the authority over life and death. Yahweh has authority over life and death. The second narrative reality is that the Exodus is Yahweh's chief expression of self-revelation to corporate Israel. We can look from the book of Exodus all the way to Malachi at the end of the Old Testament, and we can see that everything is always pointing back to the Exodus. Who's God? Oh, look at the Exodus. Are we sure that's who he is? Yeah, look at the Exodus. Because the Exodus is Yahweh's chief expression of self-revelation. The best way that I can envision it is that the Exodus is for the Hebrews, what the resurrection is for the Christian. 
it's that significant. It's the, it's the historical reality that anchors their identity as a people, but also their understanding of the identity of God. In the same way that Jesus' resurrection was the, the verifying of his divine identity and the promise that we too will experience that resurrection life, so Yahweh delivering the people from Egypt is the definitive expression of his self-identity. And what is that identity? What is it supposed to teach Israel? It's that Yahweh is indisputably, this is point two, Yahweh is indisputably for Israel as their deliverer. So if we're keeping track, Yahweh has authority over life and death, and he is indisputably for Israel as their deliverer. And the third point is that Israel has embraced a pattern of grumbling against their deliverer and his servants. Starting only three days after they passed through the Red Sea, Israel begins a pattern of grumbling against Moses and against Aaron and against Yahweh. The Hebrew word is telenoth, and it conveys the idea of grumbling, murmuring, gossip, slander. And only after three days, Israel begins to practice this repeatedly, repeatedly in different situations. They're grumbling because the only water here is bitter. And Yahweh's like, okay, Moses, throw a log in it, and it becomes sweet. And then they're grumbling because, hey, we don't have any bread. And then Yahweh's like, okay, I'll make it come down from the sky. And then like, hey, we don't have any meat. And Yahweh's like, okay, bring in the quail. So there's been like this, this pattern over the past month and a half where Israel grumbles, Israel murmurs, and Yahweh provides. And what that shows, shows the observant reader is that even though Yahweh has authority over life and death, even though Yahweh is indisputably for Israel as their deliverer, that Israel does not trust Yahweh. So if we can remember those points, I think that we can begin to approach our text with eyes to see and with ears to hear. Let's look at verse one. And all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of Yahweh, and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So the occasion for the situation, it's not a novel thing. They've been there before. There's no water. Now, my opinion is this seems pretty intentional. It's almost like Yahweh's trying to like drag them into a situation where they need to rely on him. When does he ever do that? <laughs> they aren't necessarily being led by green pastures and quiet streams. They're being led through a barren wilderness where there are, naturally speaking, there is no way to sustain this many people in that land. But they do have something pretty unique. They have the cloud. Exodus 13.21 says that, and Yahweh went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So take a moment and close your eyes and visualize this scene where you, along with some several million of your best friends are in a barren wasteland that I kind of envision to be a bit like Utah because it's really dry. And the physical manifestation of Yahweh's presence is just a little bit southeast of you. Maybe a few hundred meters. Visualize that. That you're in a situation where, man, I, you know, I wonder if God's here. Oh, 
He is. You know, like this, this is where the people of Israel are. They have a physical manifestation visible to their eyes of Yahweh's enduring presence with them. On top of that, he's already pouring out daily miracles to sustain them. Okay? That's where we are. And here's where we're going. Verse 2. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test Yahweh? So something really interesting happens here, and I, I think of it in terms of escalation, because the word that we have here as quarreled is not the telenoth that we've seen before. It's the Hebrew word yerev. And what yerev means is to contend with someone. It's a strong word, which you, it has the imagery of contending with someone in a legal sense, as in a lawsuit. It's used elsewhere in scripture in 1 Samuel 24, 15, where David says to Saul, may Yahweh therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my yerev, plead my cause, my case, and deliver me from your hand. So what we're seeing here is that the murmurings, the grumblings, the slanders, the gossips of the people of Israel are beginning to reach a boiling point that what, in, what over the past month and a half has just been some dirty talk has actually grown into a full-blown legal contention against Moses. And as we're about to see, it's also against Yahweh. But what is the substance of their contention? It's in verse three. But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children? and our livestock with thirst. Their accusation is that Moses has led them into the wilderness with murderous intent. How many of us would respond similarly if our leaders did a similar thing to us? Maybe no one. So Moses cried to Yahweh, verse four, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Notice the intensity of the congregation's anger against Moses, their lack of trust in Yahweh. They are almost ready to stone me. I think that we need to relate what Moses says here back to verse two, where he says, why do you, Yarev, why do you contend with me? Why do you test Yahweh? Moses is saying that implicit within Israel's contention with him as Yahweh's chosen leader is the reality that they are actually contending with Yahweh himself. Let me say that again. Israel is making a contention against Yahweh himself and their contention is, you brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. So even though Israel has been nothing but the beneficiary recipient of Yahweh's provision and power up to this point, even though they have experienced miraculous deliverance from Egypt, even though they have experienced miraculous provision in the wilderness, they position themselves as the legal judge, jury, and executioner over and against Moses, and therefore over and against Yahweh. In light of everything that's happened, Israel doesn't yet know, they don't yet get it, that Yahweh is indisputably for them as their deliverer and their provider. 
They don't yet know that he is nothing like the gods of Egypt. Can you really blame them? After 400 years of slavery under false gods, what are they to think of this new deity that's all of a sudden come and delivered them? Even if they have some history with him. Maybe he just brought us out into this desert to kill us. Maybe that's the kind of sacrifice that he wants, they think. They don't know that he's different. So they accuse him. And how does Yahweh respond? What we're about to see is that he doesn't respond with the rage and the retaliation that one might expect from a sovereign whose goodness and mercy has been met with resentment and accusation. Instead, what we're about to see is that Yahweh accepts the Yerev of Israel. He accepts their contention and allows Israel to judge him accordingly. Verse five, and Yahweh said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. So a couple things happen here. The first is that Moses and the elders, well, at the command of Yahweh, Moses and the elders separate themselves from the main congregation. Now these elders would have been the mature aged communal, social, and religious leaders of the Israelite community. You can think of them as like the de facto judges of the people. And as we're about to see, they go to a rock that, like we said before, is in the vicinity of Horeb, which is Mount Sinai. So they separate. Everything that's about to happen now, the main congregation of Israel does not see. Only Moses and the elders do. God also mentions to Moses to bring the staff that struck the Nile. And this is none other than the staff of God with which the gods of Egypt were judged. And I think it's a very noteworthy that mention of that specific judgment against the Nile in light of what's about to occur. Because what happened to the Nile? Anyone? Not, no, no, that's the Red Sea. What happened to the Nile? It turned to blood. It turned to blood. And scripturally, blood is understood to be an extension of the state or condition of death. In Genesis 9, 4 and 5, Yahweh says to Noah, but you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. So there's an implicit association between blood and life and death. Therefore, this is important. It'll make, it'll make everything seem so cool at the end if you get this. Therefore, we should understand that when Yahweh judged the Nile by turning it to blood, that he was proclaiming a definitive verdict of guilty upon the Egyptian pantheon. The punishment for guilt, symbolized by blood, is death. Guys, even Pharaoh got this. Like, this, this wasn't lost on him. We're not reading this into the text. Pharaoh understood this when he begged Moses in the midst of the judgment saying, plead with Yahweh your God to remove this death from me. Plead with him to remove this death from me. So the turning of the now to blood is symbolic. Not that it didn't happen, it did happen, but the fact of the historical event has symbolic power. It's symbolic of the verdict of guilt and the punishment of death. Verse six, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. Friends, we have to take the scripture seriously. We're either gonna do one of two things at this point. Either we're gonna say, oh, that's cool. That's a really cool metaphor. 
and we're just going to totally miss it. Or we're going to take the scripture seriously and recognize that it says, Yahweh stood upon a rock. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think that the scripture gives us exactly two different options for how to properly interpret that. I'm not going to tell you which one, but I'll lay them both out for you. The first is that Yahweh stood in a bodily form upon a particular rock. Now, where do I get that from? Well, a few chapters later, in Exodus 24, Moses and the elders again separate themselves from the main congregation of Israel, and this time they go up Mount Sinai, and it says they see the God of Israel, they sit down and have a meal with him, and it says they see his feet. So I think it's perfectly appropriate to see that Yahweh stood upon this rock with his feet, because he has them. Now, if that's too much for you, that's fine. The alternative is that the cloud of Yahweh's presence, which continually was leading the people, went ahead and led Moses and the elders deeper into the wilderness, closer to Mount Sinai, and that cloud concentrated itself upon the rock so as to metaphorically be standing upon the rock. I believe these are both appropriate biblical interpretations. Try and tell me another one. But let's, let's actually take a moment to, to prayerfully visualize this scene. Like, close your eyes. Let's just pause for a minute and just imagine, invite the Holy Spirit to work in our imaginations to show us what's going on here. Imagine Moses with the elders. I imagine maybe around 50 or so of them near the slopes of Mount Sinai gathered around a particular rock on which Yahweh's form in some form is resting. Let's just imagine that for a moment. and you shall strike the rock. What's happening here? Make no mistake, Yahweh is instructing Moses saying, strike me, judge me. We have here Yahweh commanding Moses to judge him with the staff of judgment, just as he judged the gods of Egypt. I want me to paraphrase this scene just to make sure we, we get it. It's as if Yahweh is saying to Moses, if this people raises against me the contention that I have brought them out of Egypt to put them to death, then you, Moses, take in your hand the staff with which you judge the Nile and judge me in the sight of their elder judges and see whether I am guilty or just. Strike me, judge me, see whether I am guilty or just. Friends, do you, do you see the cross? I do. Now let's step aside just for a moment into, um, into a little bit of a speculation. And I think there's an appropriate speculation when you invite the Holy Spirit and you don't, don't go too far with it. But why would the sovereign, all-powerful creator, ruler of the universe stoop so low as to submit himself to the judgment of his faithless people. Could it be that just like us, Yahweh feels the desire to be rightly known and the sorrow of heart that comes from that knowledge being inhibited in the recipient? Could it be that self-revelation is his impetus, is his purpose, 
is his desire? I think so. Jesus himself felt similar when he saw that his own self-revelation was not met with understanding when at the end of his ministry in John 14, 9, he says to Philip, all this time and you don't know me. All this time and you don't know me. I imagine Yahweh here thinking similarly. All this time, Israel, and you don't know me. Though I worked great deliverance for you and provided for you when you were in need, you still think I'm just like one of those gods, only stronger. Therefore, judge me, strike me, see what comes out of me, and find out who I am. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Now, the scripture doesn't detail the occurrence of, the event, of this event beyond Yahweh's instruction and the assurance that Moses did it. It says that Moses did exactly as he was told. Moses obeyed the divine command of God, and Moses struck God. Guys, this is, that's earth-shattering. Like, a man hit God with a stick. God told him to do it, but he did it. This is a big deal. Like, this is such a big deal that when Moses did this again, about 40 years down the road, without Yahweh's invitation, Yahweh said, okay, Moses, you can't go into the promised land anymore. That's your punishment. Why? It says in Numbers, because you did not hold me as holy in the sight of the people. This is serious, what's going on right here. But that was later. What about this instance? What was the outcome of this judgment? And water shall come out of the rock, and the people will drink. The result is that out of the false judgment leveled against him, Yahweh brings forth not the blood of death, but the water of life. In doing so, he reveals that contrary to his chosen people's accusations, he is nothing like the gods of Egypt. When the Nile was judged, the verdict was guilty and blood poured forth as a result. When Yahweh was judged, the verdict was just and water poured forth, thus giving life to his people. Do you see the weight and the power of the symbolism here? The parallelism. Do you see that? It's just mind-boggling. In our last verse, Moses called the name of that place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested Yahweh by saying, is Yahweh among us or not? Friends, this is a story about revelation set in the context of a miracle. The whole story is about revealing the, the divine identity. It's all about asking and answering the question, who is Yahweh and is he among us? The answer is clear. He is the one who alone has authority over life and death. He is the unwavering deliverer of his chosen people as he showed when he provided for them in the wilderness. And above all, he has now revealed himself not only as the sovereign ruler possessing all might and authority, but as one who is exceedingly humble and altogether just. He 
He is the one who, in his endeavor to reveal himself to man, goes so low as to let man strike him. And as we know, that's not for the last time. The point is this. Jesus is the spitting image of his dad. This is a story about Yahweh. But in 1 Corinthians 10.4, Paul looks back on this story and says, the rock was Christ. Friends, Jesus is just like his dad. Everything that we know and love and adore about Jesus, he learned from his father. There is no conflict between the two. Jesus is Yahweh and Yahweh is Jesus. We must not forget this. The Exodus revealed that Yahweh is superior to the the authority of the gods of Egypt. The rock revealed that he is an altogether different sort of God than they are. He is faithful beyond all imagination. He is humble beyond all precedent. And he is just beyond all accusation. That's our God. So what's the application? Jesus, sorry, Yahweh is Jesus. Israel is us and the rock is the cross. The same images that we use to interact with God in our own story, they all have their parallels in the Old Testament. Why? Because Yahweh is Jesus. God hasn't changed and neither have we. The human race has always been wayward, contentious, and quick to doubt the goodness of God. But he, our God, has always been strong to deliver, faithful to provide, and just enough to humble himself before us. And all this so that we may know him and love him and trust him. Friends, this is not just a New Testament reality. This reality runs through the whole of scripture from beginning to end. The revelation that we love and cherish in Jesus is the same revelation that we ought to love and cherish in Yahweh. They are the same. I'll close with this. At the end of his life, Moses sings a song which in part reflects upon the past 40 years in the wilderness and Yahweh's dealings with the nation of Israel during that time. One line in the song goes like this, and personally, in light of everything that we've seen, in light of God humbling himself to be struck by a man, to be judged in the sight of the judges of Israel, to reveal his character to a people who still doesn't believe that he's good, In light of all of this, I believe that when Moses sang this line, that he did it with this event in mind. He says in Deuteronomy 32.4, this rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. This rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, 
just and upright is he. This is our God, beloved. This is our God. Amen. Amen. Jeff. So uh, a couple of things. One, um, in the training school in Africa uh, on the mission base, I know you're going to be, part of your duties is going to be to train some of the indigenous. In some capacity, yeah. Um, The one thing I love about being in Africa, and we've got folks that are from Africa here in the room tonight, is the great difference. You've not been over there yet, right? I've been to Uganda, but not to Kenya. Okay. So one of the greatest differences is... uh, they, they love meticulous, especially in the training school. They'll love to go as deep as you want to go, and they'll let you go as long as you want to go. And I think they're going to eat you up over there if you go, because you're parsing Hebrew, you're doing all of this stuff. Um, when you're speaking just about the smiting of the rock, um, I, I, want us to, I just want you to let me read from Isaiah 53, which is a very familiar passage mm. when you're preaching. Yeah. I'm thinking yeah. of the inner Trinitarian, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the agreement of what needed to take place in in Christ coming and suffering and bleeding and dying. And there's some verses in there that I just, I want us, we don't have time to like open it up and put it all back together again. But one of the things that Josh is pointing out is that we we need to be very, very clear on his emphatic statement that is getting lost by the church. This is getting lost by the church. The culture has already lost it, but it's now getting lost by the church. What am I talking about? Jesus, let me just say it as plain as possible. Jesus is God. I know that sounds so simple, but friends, the church is losing this. So what I, well, I'm going to strengthen it. Jesus is exclusively God. And there is no other God. Amen. Amen. And so when, when we are in our culture, and matter of fact, it's uh, one of the major networks is running a special. I, th- I think it may have already happened with Ravi Zacharias. But the question is, do, do Muslims and Christians have the same God? And this is, this is kind of like the, the thing in our culture now because we all want to be, you know, happy and hold hands and everything's, you know, copacetic. When somebody asks you, well, we, Allah and God are the same, you say, is Allah's God named Jesus? Is, is, is Allah, is his name Jesus? Because Jesus is God. And so when we're coming to these places where people are just wanting to say Allah and God and Yahweh, whatever, you know, from whatever paradigm they're coming from. And it's just lacks definition. It's just some big deity out there somewhere. And that enables us to look at each other pleasantly, nod, no strife, and we go our separate way. The answer is no. 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 The answer is that Jesus Christ, the Lord, is God, and there Amen. is no other. Amen. So if, if, if everybody can say all day long, I appreciate what you did with the word Lord and just using the, the proper name of God, Yahweh, that... Where, where the church has got to get a grip on this again is that when somebody tells you about the Muslim God and the Jewish God and the Christian God, they're all the same God, you say, no. Jesus Christ is my God. And friends, what that does is that puts the exclusive claims of Jesus front and center in any kind of dialogue 
about uh, who God actually is. So um, let me just, and this is a little disconnected from that, but let me just read these words um, Mm -hmm. in Isaiah 53, and let's just let them soak. And let's let's go to the smitten rock. Let's just Mm -hmm. go there and let's remember that it wasn't primarily um, the Jews and the Romans that smote the Son of God. It was the Father. Mm-hmm. The Father smote the Son. Mm-hmm. So if you don't, if that doesn't resonate with you, let's just let's just read the scriptures. So in Isaiah 53, who who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Mm-hmm. For he, Messiah, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Speaking of the Son of God, the Messiah, it's prophesying. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. I just, let's just scratch that. Jesus in his humanity was very ordinary looking. He wasn't glowing in his normal humanity. He was not glowing. He was very normal. He would have looked like your average Hebrew male in his day. Yeah. He had no form or majesty that we should look him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom mid men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. So there's yeah. the human culpability. Yes, we are all in that that boat of depravity that is sunk to the bottom of the sea. We're all in there. We are all guilty before a holy God. But however, let's go a little bit further. Surely he has borne our griefs. Now we're getting into atonement. And he has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, by his stripes, we are healed. And then again, the human culpability, our guilt. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord Yahweh has laid on him, Messiah. Yahweh has laid on Messiah the iniquity of us all. Again, the Lord chastised him. The Lord Hmm. uh, smote him. And the Lord laid upon him our iniquity. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. That is Jesus going as the the mute lamb to the slaughter. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people... And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. And that's prophetic about the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Although he, Messiah, had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was Yahweh's will to crush the son. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 
Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied, and by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. What, what I really, and there's only a couple more verses, but for the sake of time, let me just say mm -hmm. this. The smiting of the sun was always the plan. Yeah. And what we need to remember is that our sin necessitated it. Somebody has to die for our sin. The holiness of God, the righteous judgment of God says sin must be punished by a death. So somebody has to die for your sin. It can't be worked off. It can't be moralized away. It can't be simply repented of with there being no atonement. There has to be a basis by which we are forgiven. And the basis of forgiveness of aton or atonement is death. Death is the only thing that pays for sin. Yeah. And so the agreement, the pre-time agreement, the, an eternity past, the inter-Trinitarian agreement between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is that the Son would die and the Father would lay the wrath upon the Son. Hmm. And I, I, I cut my teeth on the King James Version and it says this in the King James, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Why did it please the Lord? Yeah. Lord? Because the rest of it, he brings many sons to glory. Mm. So the breaking, the, the crushing, the smiting, the crucifixion of Jesus was not merely a treacherous act. He wasn't murdered per se. He was sacrificed. He was the willing sacrifice, but there's a reason. Jesus wasn't just fulfilling scripture for the sake of a token fulfillment when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He, in that moment on the cross, in the smiting from the Father, the Son became sin. And the full wrath, holy, righteous, just, eternal, perfect wrath of the Father was poured out on the Son. He was absolutely, Jesus Christ was absolutely and utterly alone. Like no human being has ever been alone on this side of, 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 of life. And it was in that moment that Jesus, as the full wrath of the Father came, he, he, he described it in this way, I am forsaken. I am forsaken. And it was in that forsaking, in that smiting, in that crucifixion, carried out by human hands, but it was the forsaking of the Father that was the, the capstone of the atonement because that's what God does when sin appears. He has to forsake it. And so Jesus became sin, took the full brunt. Now, why do I even bother telling us that? One, because I get stirred when I think about what the Lord endured for guys like you and me and all of y'all. But I want us to remember that it, I think sometimes we get caught up in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, a couple of chapters here. We know the cross. We know the timeline. We know the resurrection. Jesus goes back to heaven. He's coming again one day, and we're all going to be with him one day. And all of that stuff is good and well and true, but I don't want us to ever escape the fact that the smiting of the Son was accomplished by the Father so that you and I might never be smitten by the Father. Mm -hmm. That His, Jesus' taking of the full wrath from the Father, His being forsaken was so that you and I never have to worry about being forsaken. And so I will close with this very um, clear appeal. 
If you're doing anything other than falling upon the rock as your hope for eternity, <laughs> stop. It's nothing else. Stop. Repent. Jeff, what does that mean? Fall upon the rock. Cast yourself before him. Trust that what the Father has accomplished through the willing sacrifice of the Son, that when you yield to that in full, in full surrender, there's no more wrath left to be poured out on you. You have fled the wrath to come when you have fallen upon the rock. Josh, I want to pray for you. I'm going to ask you to stand up. I want you to, we're going to do this Sunday with Josh and Kyla, but I just want us to kind of affirm our brother the, the teaching gift and the precision is going to serve you well. Mm. Um, when, when you get over there, I'm, I'm, I'm just listening right now. You're going to be moving so quickly as you all began, but there's going to come a time probably within a few weeks of you getting there where you're going to be able to open up the scriptures and begin to teach. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm just praying Ephesians 1.17 over you that the spirit of wisdom and revelation would characterize your private devotion. As, as you mentioned, Jesus saying to Philip, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? The, the Lord's desire for you, Josh Ransom, to know him, um, may that be the catalyst. May that be your fuel. May you wake up daily and want to know him more intimately than you ever have before. And may you have the opportunities and the vocabulary to share everything that he reveals about himself to you, all that he wants to be revealed. There may be some things he'll tell you, no, Josh, that's between me and you. But everything that he gives you, I pray that it'll be released in such a way that it'll have oil on it. He's given you, Josh, a great mind. He's given you an attention. You're a laser, not a shotgun. Shotgun can hit a lot of stuff, but not with a concentrated force, so to speak. It patterns, it spreads. You're a laser. He's going to burn some holes and some stuff through you over there. Lord, let there be heat and light on Josh. Make him a flame, heat and light. Doctrine and passion, theology and power. Thank you for the way that you've wired him. Thank you for giving us the privilege of partnering with him and Kyla. Holy Spirit, seal, seal in his heart and seal in this body family partnership. God, when we see him again, the next time he comes back on this soil after he leaves Monday, let him come back with treasure to tell us. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Bless amen. you, bro. Thank you so Thank much. You,